Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Luke 21, verse 34 says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap for it will come on those who live on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen so that you may be able to stand before the son of man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So this is essentially a good review and segue. So what we talked about last week was he was talking a lot about being ready, um, about the end coming, and, and he was having these prophecies which were kind of going back and forth between contemporary fulfillment, you know, within 70 years, and long-term fulfillment, which still hasn't happened yet. And so he was kind of going through all this. He was also talking to the apostles about what they were going to experience in terms of persecution. So he's talking a lot about being ready. Be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen, but be ready. And that's what happens here in Luke 21, too, is he's just saying, be aware. Be always on the watch. Um, pray that you may be able to escape. Be ready. But what he talked about in the previous parables and stories to Luke here is that he talked a lot about being ready really came down to one thing. It didn't come down to, you know, being the smartest or the strongest or wilderness survival or even sort of being the most religious. It, it came down to knowing who the Messiah was. Watch for the correct Messiah. Be ready for the false ones to jump out at you. Don't be fooled by them. Just understand that the Messiah is coming back. Jesus is coming. He's going to be even more clear about that in one of the parables coming up. So whatever they're thinking, he's definitely starting to give them the idea that he's going away. And when he comes back, he's coming back in, in power and in glory. And so he's telling them, be ready for that moment. Be ready when that happens. Ideas of judgment and justice and the end times, what they would call the day of the Lord, that's not new to them. They already knew that was going to happen. Jesus is just connecting them to him. And he's saying it's not now. It's going to happen later. There's The kingdom of God is coming now, but not the justice. And so that was would have been a little unclear to them. But again, we understand there's kind of these two parts to Jesus' return or to Jesus' coming. The first part was he came to save us. And the second part, he comes to judge the world and to complete the saving of us, frankly. Um, and so um, that's kind of where it is. The only thing at the end of this, obviously, that confuses the chronology a little bit is at the end of this, it talks it talks as if this is happening over a period of days, that in the morning he teaches at the temple, in the evening he spends the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. That's probably true. He's probably been doing that for a while. The other gospels record these particular teachings as occurring on Tuesday, but what might be true is that he's been doing this kind of thing for weeks, you know, for a while, where he goes to the temple in the morning and then goes to the Mount of Olives to talk with his apostles and anyone who will listen in the evening. And so that he did that on Tuesday as well is not a big surprise. Um, so that's Luke. That's, that's where we, um, that's what I skipped last week uh, because because I forgot. Um, and uh, so now we're on Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, there are uh, several parables that Jesus talks and talks about. And they all have to do with that being ready idea. They all have to do with, with the end. They have to do with the judgment that's going to come. They have to do with the return of Jesus. Um, and, and, and they have to do with this idea that some people will be ready and they will be, when Jesus comes, he will be rescuing them and some people will not be ready. And when Jesus comes, they will be judged. And it's important, I think, to remember that the readiness, it, it's not, it's not departed far from where he was, that what he has been talking about is that being ready just means waiting for Jesus, knowing that he'll come, expecting him to come back, anticipating that he'll be here rather than getting caught up in the false messiahs, rather than getting caught up in other things. Um, and instead to always be in sort of anticipation that the Lord will come. And the first parable he's going to tell is really nice because it has this idea of of a really joyful anticipation. I think we we have done a good job, and that is to say, uh, not a good thing. Um, we, we have done a good job 
uh, I think in the American church and our picture of end times over the last several decades, we've done a good job of kind of making it a really scary thing. I think the motivation was to was to rescue people, was to bring people who weren't responding to the Lord uh, to come to the Lord. But I think we've scared a lot of people who already had responded to the Lord to the idea to, so that when Jesus comes back, it feels like a burden. It feels like a scary thing that's happening. I like this first parable because it really emphasizes the joy that the anticipation of the Lord coming is a joyous thing that we should be ready because it's a great thing. We should be ready because it's a big party. We should be ready because it's going to be fun and it's going to be joyous and it's going to be a celebration. And everyone who's ready is going to be part of that celebration. The people who aren't ready aren't going to be part of the celebration. Again, ready, meaning those who accept Jesus as the Messiah, not ready, meaning those who are still looking for him and, and listening to the false messiahs. So here's the, the parable. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Let's talk a little bit about the context surrounding this parable, because in this case, it's really important. It isn't always, but in this case, there's some things that we just completely won't understand unless we know a little bit about the context. I mean, the first reasonable question is, why are there 10 virgins waiting for one bridegroom? Is this some, of, some weird uh, uh, polygamous thing happening here? It's not. These 10 virgins are not the bride. These 10 virgins are the bridesmaids. Um, and why are they waiting for the groom? And, and what is the picture that's going on here? And it turns out the picture, actually, as we learn it, will make some sense of some other things that Jesus has said as well. Um, and the whole analogy of, of Jesus coming back for his bride that we see given throughout Scripture, where the church is the bride and Jesus is, is the, the groom, that whole analogy, the whole wedding analogy will begin to make more sense in relation to his return when we understand a little bit of the context. So here's here's the context. So in in Jesus time and this has shifted. It modern uh Jews don't don't uh don't do this exactly the same although they do have these same terms. Um it it's a much compressed process. But in Jesus time there were three aspects to getting married. There was the engagement, there was the betrothal, and then there was the wedding itself. And these were three different things. And the engagement was typically arranged, right? So most of the marriages were arranged. So the engagement was typically arranged by the father. He would arrange the, the marriage between his son and the, uh, the, the bride. And that was the engagement. And that was sort of a, a commitment to each other. That was to say, the plan is to get married. From there, they would have uh, something called the arusin, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't speak Hebrew well, but it's 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 transliterated E-R-U-S-I-N. So they would have this Arusin, and Arusin is what we call betrothal. And the Arusin ceremony was a little bit like a wedding ceremony. They would go into a, a, a tent um, and they would, would make vows to each other. They would make vows which were legally binding. So the betrothal is where they're legally bound. They are committed to each other. In fact, if there is... Um, uh, any relations that happen after this point, that's considered adultery. It's that kind of legally binding thing from, from Jewish law perspective, that they are now, we would think of them as married, but there's one big difference. During, the during this period, this betrothal period, they don't live together and they don't consummate their marriage. Um, and it lasts about a year. And the idea with that year uh, after they go through the ceremony, but they don't come together yet, the idea with that year, and there were probably practical reasons for this initially, the idea with that year is that the husband, the groom, he goes away to prepare a place for the bride. He prepares their place. And there probably were some financial reasons that that this kind of thing would happen after the betrothal, because there would have been some money that exchanged hands for various reasons at that point. There would have been gifts from, from the, the betrothal guests. Um, it would have been more he would have been more in a position to begin to prepare a place and it could you know they give him a year to do it so we're, we're talking about possibly building a house we're talking about you know a lot of preparation it also gives time for the bride to do preparations here you might think like like these days you know when 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 brides do can can take several months to prepare for a wedding you know getting wedding dresses ready and and getting their bridesmaids ready and just kind of getting all these other things in place so the groom and the bride go their separate ways for about a year, and they are preparing for the actual wedding to come. And then what happens is the, the bride knows that the groom is going to come for her a year later. 
but a year later is a smushy term and she doesn't know exactly what day. She certainly doesn't know what hour. And sometimes the, the groom might come in the middle of the night. And it isn't a quiet thing either. When the groom comes, it's a big procession. He blows a shofar. He, he marches down the street with a big parade of people. His groomsmen, plus the bridesmaids, we'll get to that in a second, will march down the street to the bride's house, collect the bride, and then take her to the wedding, and then back to the, the place he's prepared for her where they will consummate their marriage. Um, and so you have this idea of uh, the the father is usually the one who even appoints the time. So even think back to when Jesus said, I don't know the day or the hour, only the father knows. He's kind of referencing this idea that that the groom doesn't know the day or the hour, the father knows. Um, but he really, but he is coming. Everybody anticipates it's happening. But it's a joyous anticipation. It's a celebration. It's a really, it's a really, you know, time to rejoice. And so when he comes, it's not fear. It's excitement. It's ah, he's here now. These ten virgins. Uh, apparently, ten was a fairly common number for bridesmaids for a wedding party for the woman. And these are not the bride, obviously, he wouldn't be coming to collect all 10 of them. These are the bridesmaids. And what would happen is when the time came, the groom would take his groomsmen first and they would march to the bridesmaids who are all staying together. Are they all staying together for the whole year? Do they gather together like in the last month of the year? I don't know, I'm not clear on all that. In this parable, for whatever reason, they're all together. So they march to the bridesmaids and they collect all the bridesmaids and and they march together to the bride's house. So that's the setup. That's what's happening here. So the bridesmaids know the groom is coming. They know that he's coming soon, but they don't know exactly when. They don't know the day. They don't know the hour. So they're waiting for him. Their whole point is to wait for him. That is that is what, what their job is right now, um, is to wait for him. And that's what they're doing. So now let's read the parable now that you have some context on, on kind of what's going on with the uh, with this idea of betrothal. So it says at the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So again, with this idea, they know he's coming back in a year. They, again, they probably know, you know, within a week, roughly when he's coming, but but he takes a long time. And it turns out when it says he's taking a long time in coming, he's going to come like in the middle of the night, thus the lamps. So the idea here is that the, they all have lamps so that if he does come in the middle of the night, they're to, to like to light the street. They're the lights for the parade. They're to light up the street as they travel with him, knowing that this is your job. Knowing that you're in the procession and your job is to have a lamp that has oil in it to burn, it is indeed, as the parable says, just a matter of foolishness that five of them don't plan ahead to even have oil. They're just like, man, eh, whatever, we'll just take the lamps that have the oil in them. We're not going to worry about if we have enough for when he comes. Again, it's 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 not even it's not weird. It's 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 not um this isn't being harsh on them, but it is a reality that they weren't. They weren't they weren't wise. They weren't planning ahead. They simply said, we don't, we're not worried about it. They weren't really anticipating him coming. They were kind of knew he was coming, but they forgot their whole point was to be there ready with, with lamps. It says they all fell asleep. I don't think there's any recrimination against any of them falling asleep. It's nighttime. They're not supposed to stay awake the whole time. But then what happens is when they fall asleep, it says this, at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps have gone out. So they all wake up. But the wise ones have enough oil. They have oil. Why? Because they brought it, because they anticipated this happening, because they believed that he might come at any moment and they wanted to be ready. But the foolish ones, they're not ready. They don't have the oil. So they say, give us some of our oil, your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. I don't think, again, there's anything particularly recriminating for anybody in this. The five wise ones are just like, well, we 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 have enough for us. And you could have brought enough for you. And we're, we just don't, if we give you ours, then none of us will be able to go. 
So there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Go get some. I don't know why you didn't do it before now, but you can go try now. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. They're too late. They didn't give themselves enough time. They ran out of time. The virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So the, the basic point of the parable is no different from everything he's been saying, and it's pretty clear. He's saying to them, look, don't be like the foolish virgins. They, they thought they knew what their job was. They thought they were there to wait for the groom, but they clearly weren't ready. They clearly weren't prepared for the groom. And, and when you add to this the fact, I, I, I don't think you have to build a whole kingdom on this idea, but it is true that oil is frequently in the Old Testament, which is why it would be most relevant for Jesus using it here. It is also in the New, but it's the Old that would have mattered to the people he's speaking to. Oil in the Old Testament frequently is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so, as you know, people were anointed with oil when they were anointed with the Holy Spirit, for example. And there's other, other places that this is the case. And even in the temple, we saw that the oil that's used to burn the lamps there is, is reflective, representative of the power and the Holy Spirit of God. And so it could be that he's making that indication that, look, you know, those who aren't ready are those who haven't accepted the Messiah. From our hindsight, we can look back and say, therefore, they don't have the Holy Spirit. So they don't have the oil. And running out to get it after the Lord has already come back the second time, it's too late there's not you're not gonna have time but but there's no reason not to it's foolish just to wait for that it's foolish to not be prepared ahead of time so it could be very specific about the holy spirit but it doesn't have to be the the bottom line is simply he's saying i'm here now you've seen so much from me you've seen my miracles and you've heard my teachings and you've seen the the testimony that i am the messiah and you're going to see more because I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life. And after all of that, when you have all of that given to you, how foolish do you have to be to not be ready when I come back to say, well, we didn't know or we weren't aware or we just we, we weren't thinking. And he's just saying, be thinking, be ready, be prepared, because be, because you want to be like the wise virgins instead of the foolish ones. So it's a fairly straightforward parable, does help to understand kind of the, the picture here of the bridegroom coming. Um, any, um, any comments, any questions, anybody have any thoughts on this parable before we move on to the next one? All right. So then it goes on again. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to their ability. So we have a different picture now. This one is going to be less joyous. This one is less sort of on the anticipating the, the return of the Lord and the, and the party that comes from it and, and be ready for it because you want to be part of that celebration. That was a That was one picture. Here's another. This is this goes back to the same kind of thing that he's been telling the apostles. Who will I find people have faith when I return? You know, are you going to be like the leaders who stop believing I'm coming and squander everything and end up not shepherding your people well because you think that I'm not watching and I don't care? Um, it's it's kind of to that. Are you going to be responsible? Are you going to be honoring the tasks I leave you knowing that I'm going to come back? So he starts it off with this story of a man going on a journey. He has some servants and he entrusts his money to them. Apparently, from what I've read recently, this is not an unusual reality. That when you had servants, this was a, you didn't have banks. This was a good way to protect your money. You actually would entrust it to stewards you trusted. And it says here that he gave his wealth to them and he, and he splits it up according to their ability. So I think the idea here is that he already knows kind of who he can trust, who's kind of shown themselves faithful and who hasn't, and he leaves money with them according to that. So he doesn't leave, you know, the guy that is really bad with his money or the guy who's shown himself to not be trustworthy or the guy who might run off with all his bags of gold. He doesn't leave him gold. He leaves these three and these three, he leaves differing amounts according to sort of their faithfulness. Um. So it says, then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. 
After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, and I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I guess there is some celebration here, like the wedding a little bit. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a couple of things about this parable that I think have to be made clear, that I think we can be clear about, and it's good to be clear about. So one of them is that there is, there's no, the, the, the it, first of all, it's a parable. There's no one-to-one -one correlation here. There's some things that are a little weird, like the guy with 10 bags actually gave his 10 bags back to the master, and then the master takes the one and gives it to the guy who had 10. So was his plan to give them the money that they'd earned anyway? I don't know, it's weird, but it's just a parable. I don't think we have to figure out how all of that works together. But there are a couple of things I think we can be clear about. And one of them is that there's there's no way, nowhere else in scripture at any point is a believer described as being shut out. Even with the 10 virgins story, where it talks about five were in and five were out, and Jesus said, I don't know you, and the door was shut. That is always, as near as I can tell in scripture, a description of the people who are not believers, who have not been ready for the Messiah for the express reason that they don't believe he's the Messiah. They are not looking for Jesus because they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. They have the wrong idea about Jesus and they're looking for a different Messiah. So when it talks about being thrown into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's an even stronger picture that we're not talking about. That, that, that just doesn't sound like heaven to me. That doesn't sound like people who have you know, received the gospel are going to be entering into this kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The reason I mention this is because weirdly, and I do think it's weird, there are a lot of teachings that actually seem to speak of this being about faithful Christians versus unfaithful. And people talk about wanting to arrive in heaven and have Jesus say to them, good and faithful servant, as if there's a possibility we'll rise in heaven and Jesus will say, wicked and lazy servant, and then shut us outside with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not going to happen. Everything else in scripture is completely clear about that. We shall be like Jesus when we see him and we shall see him as he is. And we'll be embraced and we'll be hugged and we'll be loved and we'll be welcomed into the banquet because the grace of God is what saves us. So I do think it's important with these parables to understand these are not parables about good Christians versus bad Christians. These, these are not parables about Christians who were ready versus Christians who weren't ready. These are parables about people who are ready, defined as Christians, versus people who are not ready, defined as those who never accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So I, I just think it's important to see that. The second thing is this, this whole thing about whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them, and whoever has will get more. That offends our sense of justice and fairness. I get that. But I think here, you have to look back to the beginning of the story where he gave them each according to their ability. I think this is just a reflection of that continuing idea that God is giving. And again, how this relates in heaven, I don't know, because again, this is just a parable. But it goes back to this idea that he is faithful with little, will be given much. And so when we're faithful with what we have, there's certain... I don't know what that means, but there's certain reward. God entrusts us with more when we're faithful with a little. I think that's all it means. I don't think it's about social inequality or 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 a, you know class class discrepancy here. Um, the last thing I'll say is one of the things I really like about this parable, and I use it in my Hidden Life conference um, differently than the point that's being made here. The point that's being made here is the same as the point with the virgins. It's be ready. It's be ready. The, the master will come back. It's it, The guy burying the gold is a lot like the virgins who didn't have oil. They're only kind of thinking that he's really going to come back. There's there's kind of a wishful thinking on the part of the servant that the master will, won't come back. 
Um, because he knows if he comes back by his own words, he's going to be in trouble. I'll show you that in a second. So he's kind of just hoping the master won't come back. And so he's just kind of doing the best he can. Give him credit for not running off with the gold, I suppose. But he's just kind of, you know, trying to keep things status quo. But he's not really anticipating the master returning. And he's definitely not anticipating the master returning and saying, come and share in your master's happiness, which is what he says to the other two. When we read the, the lazy and wicked servant's words, we discover that he doesn't see his master that way. He doesn't think his master would ever say, come and share in my happiness. In fact, he suspects instead that the master would steal other people's happiness. Um, and as the master points out, if the servant was really concerned, I said there weren't banks. Obviously, there are banks of a sort, but you know what I mean. He said, if you were really concerned about, about you know, losing the money instead of burying it to the ground you could have just taken it to somewhere you would have gotten interest you could have at least placed it in a bank where you could have gotten interest that wouldn't have cost you much it wouldn't have been much harder you would have had at least something to show for it so there is a degree to which he's saying there's just you're not thinking right you weren't anticipating my coming back you you were in fact being a little lazy because burying it was easier than going to the bank i didn't ask you to come back with five bags of gold or one bag of gold even but you did nothing with it and, and so it, there is a, there's a little more going on here. And one of the things that I do think I like about this parable is the way Jesus understands human nature. And he gives us a hint about something which I think is useful for us as Christians in a different application. So since we have time, I'm going to, I'm going to share that with you a little bit. I, when Jesus says, or sorry, when the master who may or may not be Jesus, when the master says to the servant, why, what did you do? You know, why didn't you do more? What happened? What is this? Why am I looking at the bag of gold I gave you and not more? The servant's answer is very telling. I think it does explain why he did what he did, but it's not a good explanation because I think it may be based on falsehood. What he says is, I know that you're a hard man who reaps where you have not sown, harvests where you have not sown. And what he's saying by that is really two things. The word hard here, it, it is a word that means unduly harsh. It isn't just firm or stern. He's saying that I believe of you, the master, that you're unfair. You're really unduly harsh. You're, you're, you're going to be unduly mean to me no matter what I do. And number two, I believe that you cheat. You reap where you haven't sown. You take other people's profits. You take what other people do for yourself. So he's accusing the master of being mean and wicked, mean and cheating. And, and if you think about it, if he thinks that's what the master is like, regardless of whether the master is that way or not, and based upon what he does with the other two, it appears he may not be that way. But if he if he thinks that's who the master is, his his reaction makes a sort of sense because he's thinking if I go out and I make a lot of money, I'm not going to benefit from it. The master is first of all going to take it all from me anyway. And secondly, he's still going to be mean to me because he's not he's not just stern. He's mean. He's harsh. So if I go out and make a lot of money, I'm not going to benefit from it. And on the other hand, if I go out and risk his money and in investment and I lose money, then I'm going to be really in trouble because he's going to come down on me really hard because he's harsh. He's harsh even when things are good. I don't want to face that risk. The risk is too great. I cannot trust this master. So I'm not going to take the risk. I would rather just give him back what he's got and do nothing. I'll just do nothing because doing nothing is at least the path of least resistance. And he hopes maybe he can slip under the radar. The master, when he comes back, he says, if you really thought that's who I was, you should have at least tried to make a little money, which makes a little bit of sense. But I think this idea that because the way he saw the master was unreliable, he sees the master as making promises he doesn't keep, as stealing from other people, as being unfairly mean, it, it makes a sort of sense why this servant was unwilling to take risks. Now, I say, like I say, when you look at the way he treats the other servants, it appears that he is actually, when he says share in your master's happiness, he's sharing the gold with them because he ends up giving the guy who had 10 another bag of gold. So he, he doesn't appear to be exactly the way guy thinks he is. And the relevance for us is this. I think that in the Christian world, not in terms of will we be shut outside, because I've already said I don't think we will be. I know we won't be. That's what scripture says. We're, we're, we're saved by the grace of God. But in the, in, even in our Christian life, if we perceive God to be not quite on the up and up, if we think that he promised us salvation by grace, 
but we think there's actually some expectations that we still have to do. We think that we still have to raise to a certain level. We think we subtly suspect that when we get to heaven, things won't be as good as God promised. If that's the way we think of God, it does make us less willing to take risk. It makes us less willing to invest what he's given us in the kingdom because we're really worried and, and not convinced that it's worth it. We don't think it benefits us and we don't think it matters any. I, I, we've we've unfortunately, some of us have, have, have been sort of led to believe maybe unintentionally or, or sometimes by just outright bad teaching, we've, we've been maybe led to believe that God is a little bit sneaky, that when he says, I made you holy, he doesn't really mean holy. And when he says, I come that you might have joy, he doesn't really mean joy. And when he says, you will be you will you will be completely welcome and embraced in heaven. You know, we don't think that means completely welcome and embraced. You know, there are too many teachers who say things like, when you get to heaven, your cup of joy will be full, but your cup will be smaller than my cup because I'm more righteous than you. You know, just these, these subtle ways that we get of saying that it's not going to be that great. It's not going to be everything God said it would be. And the reality is that sometimes that's preached in order to motivate people to work harder. But I think the reality is the opposite. That when we teach people that God might have been lying to us, that things might not be great as God said, that there might still be wrath and judgment and disapproval and disappointment left for us when we see God, if that's how we think, then in some point we're like, well, the best I can get is I'm not going to burn in hell. I'm just going to bury my bag in the sand and accept that. And the truth is God isn't going to call any of us a lazy and wicked servant when we get to heaven because we have been made righteous. And so I just, I just really want to stress one of the lessons, I don't think it's the one Jesus was trying to make here, but one of the lessons that I think we can take from this parable today is that we need to count on the reliability of God. And I know I'm well within the grounds of other scripture to say that because that's all over the place. We need to be able to count on the reliability and grace of God. And when he makes a promise, we can count on it. And when he says that we're holy, we're holy. When he says that heaven is going to be without sorrow, it's going to be without sorrow. When he says that he's going to welcome us with open arms, we're going to see that we are like him and we're going to be showered with the infinite kindness of Jesus for all of eternity. We can trust that that's exactly what it's going to look like. When he says that we are all brothers and sisters and there isn't this tiered system where some of us will be more righteous and more beloved by Jesus, there won't be sibling rivalry in heaven. We can trust that that is accurate. So that's, I just think that's a, an important thing for us as Christians to recognize. Um, but the parable here, its primary point, to be fair, is be ready. And how do you be ready? By embracing Jesus as he is, by recognizing he is the Messiah, he is the God of grace, he is our Savior, he is our righteousness, he is our salvation. And if we embrace that, we'll be ready. And when he comes back, we will have fruit. That's the promise. We will have return. Jesus isn't going to call us a wicked and lazy servant. He's going to welcome us into the kingdom. He's going to say, come and share with your master's happiness. And that is a guarantee that we're given throughout the rest of scripture. So any thoughts from anybody on this parable before we move on? Yes, I can breathe again. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, well, I was just like thinking about it too. And yeah, like Jesus is telling them who he is and he's doing like amazing things and everything for, you know, for them to know he's like good and he's like God and everything like that. But I think it's even like interesting in these two that both the five virgins and the guy who just buried the money that like it didn't even seem like they had a like even a respect you know like for god or even to like look into it you know how it talks about the fear of the lord being the beginning of wisdom and like and that's like what you know he's trying to get like the pharisees and others to see right now you know like and kind of i feel like if yeah with the the guy who hit it, it's like, well, you could have at least put it in a bank and got interest, you know, and stuff like that. You could have at least acknowledged, like, it seems like, like I was your master, you know, and then even with the, the virgins, like, I mean, you didn't do anything like about, you know, this, you know, to make sure you had like any oil or whatever. And so, I don't know. It it seems to like make 
yeah, more sense and like connect better, like with that idea. And he's throwing it out with them. And yeah, no, that's really good because both of their responses are weird. And that I think is part of the point. Yeah. That you know, it's not that we're supposed to hear these parables and think, yeah, I, I would be like that. I, I think in reality, we're supposed to hear <laughs> absurd. We're like, that's weird. You know, why on earth would you go to a wedding party? And not knowing that you might be responsible for the light in the middle of the night and just not bring what you needed, you know, and why would you yeah. master's money and bury it? It is a little weird. And I think you're right, Meredith. I think a lot of it comes down to their perception of the person who's coming. There is a little, there's a lack of respect. There's a lack of anticipation. There's a lack of importance. There's a lack of any kind of urgency. They're just like, you know, maybe he'll come. And if he does, I guess we'll go with whatever happens. And, and Jesus is like, really let's not let's let's be a little more on the ball here and recognize that if i am who i say i am i'm worthy of a little more urgency you know i'm worthy of a little more anticipation and and a little more expectation and you're right the pharisees yeah. the other thing about these is it's the the reason their responses are weird is because they're people who ostensibly are in the inner circle you know it's not weird for people who aren't the bridesmaids to not have their oil lamp ready they aren't expecting <laughs> to come and it wouldn't be weird for someone who wasn't a servant to not be making money for the master they're not expecting him to want them to but in both these cases they're people who are ostensibly part of it they're supposed to know what's what and i think the, that is the pharisees right they're ostensibly supposed to be on top of the messiah who he is and what it means and what they should be looking for yeah. Jesus is like well or even like, at least like considering it like it seems like in so many ways the pharisees are like pushing him away with all their might well just the ones we hear about in the way jesus sure. speaks you know and not even like considering like you know okay yeah this guy you know has done amazing things maybe we should yeah for sure sorry no, i interrupted no you didn't that was really good that was really good anybody else any thoughts on on this I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, if I went up to my boss and said, well, you're an awful boss. And so this is you kind of think that they'd get real mad at you. And he didn't. I mean, he just came out and said, well, if that's what you thought, you should have done this at least. Um, I, I just thought that that was an amazing restraint on his part in the parable. It is pretty funny that he thought that explanation would go over well, right? <laughs> Well, as part of me wonders too, I mean, it does seem like, yeah, there's, there's something, he just definitely does not see the master in the right way, but part of it, it kind of makes me almost seem like it's a little bit of an excuse too. I think that's what the master, that's certainly the implication the master gives. He's like, no, you're just wicked and lazy. You know, it's like, if you were yeah. really concerned about it, you could have put it in a bank. I think that's his point. If that's really what you thought, put it in a bank. The fact that you just buried it just shows you were doing the minimum, the absolute minimum, you know, and. Well, and, and even that he, if he really thought he was, yeah, like a harsh master, not only that, but he would have, you know, used a little bit more respect with his. Yeah. Yeah. Master. Yeah. It's all, it's all a little weird. <laughs> it is a parable. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Anybody else? Yeah, that's a good catch, Bill. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay, so the third one, which you can argue is not, I think it is a parable because it, it but it's really less of a parable and more of a description of what's going to happen at the end. Um, the only parable thing about it is he talks about sheep and goats, but but I think that that's a metaphor. I think the whole story itself is not so much a parable, it's just a description, But but it's the same point he's making the same point he's gonna jesus is gonna separate those who are ready from those who are not ready so let's read it and see what he says when the son of man comes in his glory so this is where this is probably the most direct statement he's made because they already know he refers to himself as the son of man he's done that several times so now to say when the son of man comes in his glory that's pointing back to daniel where the son of man is is described by Daniel in this really glorious, powerful, mighty, almost warrior type imagery. And so Jesus is saying, guess what? That will be me. It's not me. I mean, it is me now, but it's not the form I'm taking now. It's not the, it's not the role I'm playing now, but this will be me. And, and so he is giving them 
he's he's being pretty straightforward that when the end comes, I'm coming back. And again, so if they're starting to connect it with, I don't know. I don't know where they go with this, where their brains go. Maybe they think this is happening tomorrow. I'm not sure, but this is what he says. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So this is a very big picture. This is where, this is one of those moments where C.S. Lewis would say, you can say a lot of things about Jesus, but you can't say he was just a good human being and a good teacher because good human beings, and good teachers, if they said things like this are also maniacs, they're lunatics because this is, this is nuts, right? C.S. Lewis is like, he's either God or he's crazy, but he can't be just good or he's a con man. You know, those are your options. So it says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the, the, the nation, oh, sorry, all the nations will gather before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This does remind me of the parable where it said that there will be tares and wheat, there will be weeds and wheat that grow in the same field and only God only at the end can separate them. Same kind of idea. Sheep and goats in this parable are, are, are something that Jesus has to separate. Um, he will put the sheep on his left and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the very basic idea here is that God will take, Jesus will make the judgments and separate people. So you want to be in the sheep and not, or yeah, you want to be in the sheep and not the goats. It's confusing because today we think sheep are bad and goats are the greatest of all time. Is that, isn't that crazy. Anyway, he says, you want to be in the sheep, you don't want to be in the goats. So he separates them. There is a question, right? This idea that the division at the end of time of who's righteous and who's not will be based on how we treated other people rather than based on the grace of Jesus is certainly not compatible with the rest of scripture. <laughs> the idea that when it comes down to it, what will get you into heaven is whether you were nice to the nice to other people or not. It's a it's a it's a it's kind of a nice thought in one sense, but it's it doesn't seem to reconcile with all the talk about the fact that our righteousness is by God's grace, that our righteousness is by Jesus. You know, how does the criminal on the cross who says he'll be in paradise, how does he get there? He didn't have a chance to be nice to anybody and very possibly had been mean to everybody. So there's two ways, I think, to understand what's happening here. And one of them, I'll give you the, the minority opinion out there. There's a few commentators who say this. It's not my position, but I'll give it to you so you can chew on it. The minority opinion is that this is not actually the final judgment, that Jesus is talking about a separate judgment. Then in the final judgment, which comes after, you know, at the very end, just before the world is destroyed, that that is more clearly laid out for those who are written in the book of life or not. It's described in Revelation. It's much more in line with the idea that, that it's by Christ's salvation and Christ's blood and not by what we do. So they say this is not that final judgment. They they put this at a very specific moment, which has to dovetail with a lot of other end times theology. But if you happen to have a specific end times theology, what they say is this occurs after the tribulation, but before the millennial kingdom. So there's this moment where there's this great tribulation. We've read about that in Daniel. We've read about that in the Gospels. We'll read about it again in Revelation. 
But the, their picture is that there's this great tribulation, and during this time, the Christians and the Jews are very oppressed. They're they're very they're they're at the bottom of the heap. Um, because they refuse to worship the beast. And so as they stay faithful to Jesus, they're they're at the bottom, they're oppressed. And all the rest of the nations are lined up against those people, Christians, Jews, and ostensibly there could be some other people who are in that same category, but mostly it's them. And their, their idea is at the end of that tribulation, Jesus comes down and he rules for a thousand years on earth over all the nations. And they're saying that this judgment is the beginning of his ruling. And what he does is he gathers all the nations to him. And he says to those people in those nations who were, who were kind to the Christians and Jews that were being oppressed, he says, as you were to them, so you were to me, so you get another chance. You get to live in the millennium and see if you come to accept me as the Messiah. And to those who weren't kind to the Christians and Jews, but were instead part of the oppression, he says to them, that was your last chance, so you go off to eternal punishment. That's their position. And that's how they explain that it's it seems to be about the way you treat people rather than about the blood of Christ. That's possible. That's that, that could be. It does require specifically that you believe in the tribulation, the coming of the Lord, the millennial rule, and then the end of the world, which is which a lot of people do, but it also, my biggest sort of thing that I react to in that, that is a little hard for me to reconcile is just the whole talk about eternal punishment and eternal life. It doesn't say to the sheep, he says, you can live for a thousand years and figure it out. And to the goats, you can, you can, you can go off to eternal punishment. He just says, those of you who did this, the sheep go to eternal life, the goats go to eternal punishment. It feels like the end to me. It feels like a judgment that is, is more permanent than simply leading into the millennial period. Um, so where does that leave me? How do I reconcile this with salvation by grace? Well, I think it, here's, here's your other possibility. I don't think Jesus is intending to explain the gospel here, right? That's the point. He's telling a story and the story he's telling, the picture he's giving is not intended to tell us how the gospel works. That's going to happen really most specifically and detailedly through the letters of Paul. The, the, the greatest understanding we have, although it's completely compatible with most everything Jesus says, the greatest understanding we have of the gospel really comes from the apostles' teaching after Jesus goes goes back to heaven. And, and so that's where we get the clarity of the gospel. Jesus isn't giving that here. Just like when he says to the rich young ruler, if you want to go to heaven, go sell everything you have. That's not a description of the gospel. It's a recognition of what's in the way of for that young man to receive the gospel. This also is not intended to say the how-to to the gospel. So if you take that out for a second, there are two things that we do see from this story that, that, are, that he is emphasizing. If he's not emphasizing the how-to or what makes us righteous, what is he emphasizing? Two things. One is that Jesus will make the final judgment, not you. Jesus is the one who's going to decide, the sheep and the goats. He makes that final judgment. And two, the second point he's emphasizing is that the kingdom of God always protects the most vulnerable. And that's something we've heard all along. That's not a new thought. The idea that in the kingdom of God, God would honor those who take care of the poor and impoverished and hurt and, and small, that's not new to us. That's been something he's been saying all along. So to, so to turn things on their head and try to say to the Pharisees, you think the kingdom of God is about power. The reality is the people that are my people are those who take care of the poor, the impoverished. I am. I, I um, am represented not by the powerful, but by the small. What you did to them, you did to me. I'm represented by the small. Those are the points he's emphasizing. It is interesting that it doesn't it does imply, and it implies strongly, I'll give you that, but it does not directly say that the reason Jesus separates the sheep and goats the way he does is because of the way they treated other people. It just says that he separates them, and then he says, you did these things, and that was good, and you didn't do these things, and that was bad. So it doesn't specifically say that's why he made the determination he did. But again, I don't even think that's the point. I think the point is just to emphasize to the Pharisees I am re reflected in the in the poor and the small and not in the high and the mighty and the powerful. And number two, that I make that judgment. Now, the truth is, if, if Jesus makes the judgment of separating the sheep and the goats, that's enough to bring us back into compatibility with the idea of grace. Because again, Jesus will make that determination not based upon what you did, but based upon the grace of God. But nonetheless, it will still be true that the people of God will should be and will be by 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 Jesus's grace 
the people who also are looking out for the vulnerable and the poor and impoverished. Um, it seems like this, I mean, kind of like the tension and needing to be taken in context, it reminds me of James, which will come to before too long, because I think it's one of the early letters, right? But the idea of faith without works, and then also James's focus on caring for widows and orphans. So there's a lot of alignment there with this piece. That's good. That is a good a good picture. And so when we get to James, that actually might even help inform this parable a little bit or this story a little bit. Yes, Meredith. I guess too, I mean, uh, this is like a way that um, what was kind of in the way for them, like the Pharisees and stuff coming to Jesus, because they were su specifically supposed to be doing these things. This was their job. And then they like were, and then specifically that is what's getting in the way because they're trying to kill him because he's calling them out for like, you know, not doing these things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that just like the rich young ruler, what was in the way of his receiving the gospel was his wealth. What's in the way of the Pharisees receiving the gospel is their power. So Jesus is is kind of giving them a story that takes that from them. I think that's a really, that's good. That's a good, that's a good parallel. And even though I brought up the rich young ruler, I didn't think of that until you said it. So yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, no, thanks. That, no, this like helps. That's, I don't know, that's been... I guess like Pam, I can breathe again. I mean, it wasn't that dramatic, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. I think, I, yeah, I really like the points both you, both you and Lorraine made. I think those are really good. And I do think James will, will, get, will inform this a little bit. I think that's a good point. Well, I've always had a problem with reconciling the tension that is in these and the grace of God that is shown every place else. It's like, and, and growing up a good Southern Baptist, you know what translation of sto these stories I heard, <laughs> you know, and still today, you know, as we're reading them, I'm going, oh no, I'm a failure. Yeah. So, yes, it, it's good to have, you know, that pointed out that, you know, it it is okay. It is okay. Yeah. Well, it's kind of crazy, too, because, I mean, well, and you were talking about this, too. I mean, like, Jesus hasn't even died and come back to life yet. It's like by saying like that, you're like totally taking it out of context in a lot of ways. And it's like, okay, when Jesus was talking to, you know, these Jews back, you know, when he was really talking to Gentile Christians, you know, 2,000 years later, it was just, you know, <laughs> covered and stuff. <laughs> no, that's true. And the thing that is, you know, when you look at Jesus, as, as we've looked at him over the, the Gospels this far, um, the thing about his message is it is consistent. You can say, why didn't he exposit the gospel more clearly in the way Paul does, you know? And 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 one thing I'd say about that is on on and I guess this all of you already know this. On Sunday nights, we're going through the book of Romans. That's a long book. That's really detailed. It's really thorough. To sort of exposit the gospel is is something that takes a, a lot of of really complexity for Paul to do to explain it to the Jews. And but when, so Jesus isn't getting into that partly because it would have made no sense to them to explain it because he hadn't even died yet and he hadn't come back to life yet and the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. I mean, there's so many things that he would have had to explain, pre-explain for him to, as he's walking the earth to explain it, it would have been nonsense to them. But the second thing is, it's not like he's lying or inconsistent. It's just that he does what God always does in scripture, and he gives the information that we can handle at the time, and then progressively adds to it as we go, what, as we can understand it. Because the message that Jesus consistently gives in the Gospels is, trust me, follow me, watch me. That's it. And that's really all they need to know, because then when he dies and comes back to life, well, okay, now they can start to get more information. Now they can start to understand better what's going on. because So it is consistent, because it is all based on Jesus. He doesn't really, even the rich young ruler, he's not like, yeah, sell everything and then go do whatever you want and you're good. No, he's like, go sell everything, come back and join me. It's still always about me, me meaning Jesus, not me meaning David here. It's always about Jesus. And 
I think that that is that's that's the thing to recognize in the Gospels that Jesus keeps pointing to Himself. Now He also talks about kind of what that He He's He's clear to talk about the differences in the kingdom of heaven from what they expected, that the young and the oppressed and the poor and the weak are are looked after, that the vulnerable are cared for, that access is unlimited, that anybody can come to the kingdom. Those kinds of things are also consistent and important. But the but the wherefore is the how the how tos which we as American Western Christians really like are how tos the how tos he he leaves for Paul but the only how to he does give is me follow me be with me trust me just go where I go well go where I go it'll work out other times he kind of does give how tos and they're like nope <laughs> you're right I mean with Nicodemus it gives more right. It gets a little more complicated with Nicodemus because Nicodemus, I think, can handle it. Well, and he keeps telling him the the son needs to die and rise again and be glorified. And they're like, nope. You're right. And I think that's the case in point, right? When he does give them more, they're just like, nah, can't can't go there. So it makes sense. (laughs) You're wrong, Jesus. Try again. Yeah, it makes sense that he keeps it really simple and, and, and just follow me. Um, and and I think that's what's happening here. He's not going into the how-to. He's he's talking instead about being ready. But even there, what does be ready mean? Look to me. Look for me. Don't fall prey to the false messiahs. So, good. So, one last story, and then we're done with Tuesday. So, Mark 14. So, remember, this is not in your chronological Bible in this order, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, you might have to go back. Because what the chronological Bible did, if I remember correctly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. What the chronological Bible did is it put the two anointings, the one with Mary, Martha, and Jesus, and the one with Simon the leper together, and it put them earlier. Um, well, Mark 14 might be here. Sorry, we haven't quite got there, but we are going to. Um, but but these things with Simon the leper are time-coded. They're both told, as we're about to see here, they're a couple of days before the Passover, whereas the time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus was also time-coded, and we were told it was about a week before the Passover. So there's already a, an indication they're not at the same time. On top of that, they're clearly different people. Unless Simon the leper's house is where Mary and Martha and, and uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, Lazarus, sorry, important guy. Um, unless unless uh, they're living or hanging out at Simon the leper's house, it doesn't make any sense. So I do think they're two separate things. I think within a week of each other, you have the same thing happen to them in two different houses, probably by two different people. I don't think that's ridiculous because what does happen is not that unusual. It's a, it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, expressive for and intimate for some of the apostles, um, and it's a little bit expensive for the guy who wants to hold on to the money for himself. Um, but other than that, it's not that unusual. So I think the fact that this happened twice is not that surprising. And I do think they're separate events. So when we get to the anointing, which, sorry, is probably not quite, it's probably coming up a little bit later, you're going to find your chronological Bible is not with me. You'll have to go back um, to find it if you want, or you can just listen. But Mark 14, this may actually still be in order in your chronological Bible. I don't remember. But it says this. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. All right. Next week, when we get to Wednesday, which it will be Wednesday next week. I know that's confusing. Next Monday, it will be Wednesday. Um, when we get to the Wednesday of the last week of Jesus, we, we'll, we'll talk extensively about the timing. It gets a little bit, this is where it gets a little bit hard. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke say some things that sound in contradiction to what John says. We'll talk about that next week. I don't want to get into it all now. But even here, Luke says this. He says we're two days from the Passover. Um, and uh, we're we're operating under the understanding right now Passover will be on Thursday. Um, we'll talk about why that is when we get there. So that's why we think this is Tuesday. There are, we've, a lot of us have been taught, and this is not like, heresy or like i'm mad about this but a lot of us have been taught that the last supper is the passover meal there's something elegant about that there's also reasons to think that may not be true that the meal they have at the last supper is actually the pre-passover meal the day before so when this says it's two days to passover that doesn't mean it's two days to the, the crucifixion it might if it does then it could be thursday that's the thursday argument 
If it doesn't mean that, it means that he's crucified on Wednesday, the day before Passover. We have in this passage a good reason to believe that, and that's that what is the Pharisees' plan? Is it to capture and kill Jesus and arrest him during the festival? No, it's to do it before the festival, because if they do it during the festival, they're afraid the people will riot. So that's what it says right here. They're scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So that may be indication that they do it before Passover, which would be on Wednesday, which again, we'll go into the details about that next week. Matthew 26, one through five says this, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to crucified. Okay, now this one sounds like he's saying that Jesus will be handed over to be crucified on the Passover. That's possible. Here's the argument for that. Reconciling that with what we just read, you can go one of two ways. You can say the Pharisees wanted to arrest and kill Jesus before the Passover, but they didn't succeed, so they got him on Passover. That's one possibility. The other is to say that Jesus is not saying these two things are going to happen at the same time. He's simply saying that two days from now is Passover, and sometime in the next two days, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. But you can start to see why the chronology of this gets a little murky. Uh, it depends on how you reconcile these things, where you go. So I'm, I'm not adamant about anything. We're going to press ahead with the idea that it's Wednesday. We'll talk about that again a lot more next week. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. I will just remind you, we'll see a lot of this again when we start looking into the trial. I'll just remind you that historically, we've discovered a lot about Caiaphas, or a, a reasonable amount about Caiaphas, and that he was kind of the godfather of priests, um, that he was really part of this family clan. Um, he was he was, he was was priest because he was the uh, nephew of the previous priest, and that there seems to be a lot about them being here just for power and just because of the money that they make and the power they hold, and very little true sort of Jewish sentiment in them at all. They are Jews, but very little Jewish sentiment, and in fact, probably not even Levites. They probably shouldn't be priests at all. So there's a lot about the, this this time period where not just Christians, but even, even historical Jews who don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, nonetheless recognize that this time period was a, was a very corrupt time for the priesthood. It's not, it's not like a time they're really proud of um, in terms of that. And so the, this is Caiaphas. The name of Caiaphas kind of reminds us where we're at, uh, whose name is Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So here, even though Jesus said, Passover, crucifixion, two days. Even here, we see that they're trying to do it not on the Passover, but before it, before the festival. Okay. Luke 22. Now, the fest Luke 22, verse 1. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And now we come to the second anointing. And this is where we have Mark 14, verse 3. And if the chronological Bible put this way at the beginning. But notice, even in the way Mark arrangements arranges it, it comes after expressing that the Passover is two days away. So I think this is a better placement for it. I think the chronological Bible just wanted to make them the same story because they're so similar. But I think it's I think it makes sense that they're separate stories. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? Even this idea that they're like, they're they're being such spoil sports. You know, she does this thing out of devotion and love, and they, they come down on her hard. And even the fact that Jesus' instinct is to defend her, is to, is, to, is to look at his apostles whom he loves, and still jump in to defend her and say, just leave her alone. My goodness, you know, give, give her some grace here. And that's what he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. 
The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Notice this is not the cynical statement sometimes we make it to be. He doesn't say the poor will you will always have with you, so you can't do anything about it. He says if you're really concerned about the poor, you've had lots of opportunities to help them, and you will have plenty of more opportunities to help them. Don't tell me this one moment is the only reason you can't help the poor, because she poured perfume on me, right? And on top of that, there's very special things happening here. I'm going to die. You know, this is not run-of-the-mill moment here. So he says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. Be my guest. But but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. He uses this moment to say, look, I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow or in two days or in three days. It's close, no matter which dating you go by. I'm going to die very soon. She knows it. She has this sense of it. She's instinctively, she's, 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 anointing me like you would anoint a, a body that you're about to bury. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love the literal accuracy of this prophecy. Here we are reading the gospels, and indeed, we're talking about her. Uh, Matthew 26, 6 through 13, same story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which he poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that that either closes out Tuesday night or actually begins Wednesday, because I don't know if this is after sunset or not. But it's clearly after he's been to the temple, he's been to the Mount of Olives, now he's returned to Bethany, he's there for the night. And that night, possibly after sunset, so maybe it's actually the beginning of Wednesday, uh, this is the story that happens. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.